0: can turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. So I, I didn't start driving until I was 17. And, and when I started driving, my parents... Gave me one of these to drive, a late 1970s Chevy Blazer, not the cool kind like the 4x4, but two-wheel drive, donut tires, vinyl seats, spotty AC, uh, zero to 60, maybe if you were going downhill. Uh, it was just really not a cool car to drive. I felt pretty self-conscious driving the Blazer around town. So I began to dream of a better ride. And, and technically speaking, that dream came true. A few years later, I got my grandmother's Oldsmobile 98, it was, uh, it was <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was gold, actual gold in color. Um, the AC worked and it could do 60 miles an hour, so that was great. But when you took a corner, it, it rolled over like a boat. It was like driving your living room couch. There was nothing sporty about it. So still, I dreamed of a day when finally I could buy a better car. In the last year of college, I bought one of these. Nissan 240 black hatchback stick shift Zero to 60 about 7 seconds I loved that car The paint was perfect It was awesome to drive fast So awesome that it became a source of temptation for me I began to speed around town, I began to view speed limits as suggestions, especially on this, this little country road, my favorite road on the whole planet, it wound through trees up and down hills, I drove it way over the speed limit, loved that little road, and one Saturday morning I woke up to go for a drive, and, and I get to that road and I gun it, and the trees are flying by and I'm rapidly approaching the first turn, and I, I downshift and I set up my turn, everything's perfect except for one thing, didn't realize it had rained there the night before. Just a little bit. Where the sun was out, it had already dried, but where it was shady, like the corner I was rapidly approaching, it was still wet. I hit that slick spot way too fast, slid full speed right side into a guardrail. When my car finally stopped, I hopped out, ran around to inspect the damage, and just about wept. Every body panel on the right side of my car was mangled. I was overcome by sorrow. This car I had dreamed about and scrimped and saved for six years. I had ruined with one stupid, foolish, sinful decision. I was sick with regret. Have you ever felt that way? Have you given in to some sin, some temptation, some foolish choice, and then when the consequences of sin come upon you, just been sick with regret? If you felt that way, you're not alone. Sin always leads to regret. Sin fractures our relationships, it damages our body, it ruins our possessions, it costs us our peace and our joy. Sin always leads to pain and that pain always leads to regret. And in the midst of our regret, the question we ask ourselves is, can this be fixed? This damage, this pain, this suffering I have caused through my sin, can it be fixed? Now that's no big deal if it's a car we're talking about. That's easy to fix. But what about if it's a marriage? that you have damaged through your sin? What about if it's your kids that you've damaged? What about if it's a a friend you have driven away? What about if it's your finances or possessions that you have lost through sin? What if it's your joy and your peace that you have sacrificed for sin? Can those be restored? Can those be fixed? Can God come and fix what you have broken in sin? And even if he can fix it, does he want to? Is God willing to step into the mess you've made of your life and bring restoration and healing? Well, those are the questions that Isaiah's audience is asking in our passage this morning. Isaiah chapter 40, we're entering into the second half of the book of Isaiah. The first half, chapters 1 through 39, were written to Isaiah's contemporaries. The nation of Judah while he was alive. And and if you remember what we've been studying in chapters 1 through 39, he wrote to warn them. That if they continue in sin, God's judgment is coming. God is going to send the Babylonians to punish them and exile them. Well, unfortunately, very few people listen. Very few people heed Isaiah's warning. And so Isaiah knows, he concludes, well, if they're not listening, then that judgment is coming and it's time for me to think about the future. So in chapter 40, Isaiah begins to write to a future audience. He begins to write to a generation that will live on the other side of discipline a generation that will live on the other side of exile. He's writing to those Jews who will live hundreds of years in the future in Babylon after God's judgment has come, after Jerusalem is wiped out, after the Babylonians defeat their nation and lead them off as captives to Babylon. Isaiah writes to those folks, and he knows that they're going to be spiritually in a very different place than his contemporaries. Their, their big sins like idolatry and pride that they've been given, giving into for centuries, those are going to be taken care of. They're going to have repented of those. They're not going to be self-confident anymore. Actually, they're going to be exactly the opposite. They're going to be defeated. They're going to be overwhelmed by the consequences of their sin. They're going to be crushed. And in the midst of their remorse and sorrow over sin, they're going to ask those same questions that we do. They're going to ask, is God able to fix this? Is God able to restore? Is God able to deliver us, to rescue us from our sin? Or has God been defeated by the Babylonian gods? Was our God, Yahweh, just another casualty of our sin? Or or if he hasn't died yet, is he simply abandoned us? Have we crossed some line in the sand with God? Game over. He's done with us. He's finished. He's he's left us. Is there any hope for us or are we a lost cause? That's the question that rolls through the minds of Isaiah's audience. That's the question he's going to answer in chapter 40. It's the same question that we ask whenever we're overwhelmed by remorse. It's a two-part question. When we have sinned in serious ways and brought pain and suffering and damage into our lives, number one, is God willing to restore us? Is he willing to step in and fix what we've broken? And then part two, even if he's willing, is he able to do it? Have we sinned so badly? Have we done so much damage that we are beyond hope of God's restoration? That's the two-part question that Isaiah wants to answer for us this morning. He jumps right into part one of that question. Is God willing to restore me even after I have sinned in major ways? Even after I have caused great damage and pain in my life? Isaiah jumps right into the answer in verse 1 of chapter 40. Look with me there. Isaiah says comfort, oh comfort my people says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Okay, so so is God willing? Is he interested in restoring us after we've sinned? Isaiah's simple answer is yes. God is willing to restore you after you've sinned. The the people of God, they had sinned in really big ways. Idolatry, injustice, those are some of the biggest sins you can commit. They had committed them for centuries. And yet still, God's intention towards his people is comfort. That word in verse 1, comfort. It means to encourage. God is calling his heralds like Isaiah to encourage his people. And notice the repetition. Remember in Hebrew, we emphasize things through repetition. God is emphasizing that his intention towards his people, his strong desire towards them is comfort. He wants to encourage them. This is not something God is passive or uninterested in. He longs to comfort his people. He is desperate to comfort his people. Verse 2, he wants to speak comfort kindly to his people. That means literally to speak to the heart. God wants to speak words of encouragement and hope and peace to his hurt and broken people. That's God's desire. He wants to speak words of kindness to them. And what are those kind words? Well, you get those kind words in three synonymous phrases. God wants them to know that their warfare has ended, their iniquity has been removed, and they have already received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Point of all three statements is the same. Their time of discipline from God is at an end. It's time for restoration. That's the point of all three of those statements. Their sin deserved God's discipline, so God's discipline has come. But God's discipline is never his last word for his people. Discipline is never God's final word to us. He does not want to leave us crushed under the weight of our sin. Discipline has come, but now discipline is done. And God can't wait to bring comfort and healing and restoration. God's final word to his people is always deliverance. That's what he wants. He wants to bring healing and hope and restoration to his people, even after they have sinned. God's final word to us is always comfort and deliverance. His ultimate purpose for us is life, not death. It's deliverance, not destruction. That's what God wants for us. And our sin does not change that purpose. Even after you sin, God's purpose for your life is still life and deliverance, hope and restoration. That's what he wants for you. Remember the words we studied back in Isaiah chapter 30 a couple weeks ago. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. Yes, when you sin in love, God must discipline you, but discipline is never his desire. That's never what he wants. What God wants is compassion, mercy, grace, blessing. That's what God longs to send you from heaven. That's what he waits to give you. Yes, God wants to restore you. Is he willing to heal you even after your sin? Absolutely he is. He's desperate to do it. But Isaiah is not yet done answering this question. So God is willing to restore us even after we've sinned. But next thing Isaiah wants us to understand, look at verse 3. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What Isaiah is saying in this beautiful piece of poetry is, not only is God interested, not only is he willing to rescue you, but he wants to do it in person. When God brings spiritual healing and restoration to our lives, he doesn't do it from a distance. He does it in person. And and Isaiah uses this beautiful imagery to picture this great distance between God and his people. Between them, there's a wilderness, a desert, mountains, valleys. That's how Israel feels at this moment. They feel like their sin and judgment have separated them far from God. But Isaiah has good news. That's about to change. God is coming rapidly to you. And in preparation, I want you to prepare the way, level everything out. In in modern terminology, what Isaiah is saying is, your God's coming quickly, so roll out the red carpet for him. Prepare yourself for him by rolling out the red carpet, because that's what you do for famous, powerful people. And there's no one more famous and powerful than your God, so get ready, he's coming. God delivers us, restores us, heals us, and blesses us, not remotely, but in person. He doesn't call you up on a video chat when he wants to do something in your life. God's not about FaceTime. God comes in person. He's about real FaceTime. He wants to do things in your life, in the flesh, in person. That's what he always does. That's his mode of operation. He comes to us in person. That's what he did 2,000 years ago. When he wanted to accomplish redemption for humanity, he didn't do it from a distance. He sent God the Son, second person of the Trinity, in the flesh to walk among us and die for us. That's the same thing God does today. Do you realize if you are a believer in Jesus, God lives in you, literally. God is in your body and your mind right now, third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. He dwells in you. When God heals you, when he restores you, when he grows you, when he matures you, he doesn't do it from a distance, he does it in you through his Holy Spirit, even if you don't feel that way. Even if you feel like God is far from you, he is not, he could not be closer, he is in you right this moment. God wants to heal us, restore us, bless us, deliver us, even after our sin, and he wants to do it in person, not from a distance. That's the second thing Isaiah wants us to understand and answer to the first question, but he's not done yet. Keep going. Verse six, a voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is like grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. What Isaiah is doing in this, another beautiful piece of poetry, is he's contrasting the unreliability of humanity with the absolute reliability of God. Now there's an unfortunate translation here in the NAS, verse 6. All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. Loveliness. That's, I don't think it's the right translation of hesed in Hebrew. It's really loyalty. He's saying that all of mankind's loyalty, all of mankind's promises are fleeting. They are fading. You cannot count on us. Why can you not count on the promises of human beings? Because at the end of the day, we're nothing more than grass. Now, if you didn't catch it, that's not a flattering comparison. <laughs> grass grows up today and it passes away tomorrow. It's blown this way and that by every wind that passes. And, and probably Isaiah has in mind something called a hamson, a, a wind that blew up from the east in the ancient world. It was hot, it was dry. When it blew across the countryside in May, it would wither the grass from green to brown in 48 hours or less. Almost instantaneously, this wind just withers the grass. And Isaiah says, that's us. We are fleeting. We are fading. And because of that, we are unreliable. You can't count on our promises. You can't count on our intentions because they pass away. In contrast, the word of God stands forever. The decree of God is absolutely reliable. His promises you can bank on. And so here's the point. Yeah, you've sinned big time. Your sin has caused serious damage in your life. Guess what? That doesn't matter. Because God's intention to rescue you, comfort you, bless you, and deliver you, that cannot be undone. That cannot be set aside by anything you do. Isaiah's point is simply that God does want to comfort you. He wants to do it in person, and he wants to do it no matter what you've done. There is nothing you can ever do in your life that will undo God's promise to bless you, heal you, and restore you. Because you're nothing more than a blade of grass. You can't contend with the will of God. And his will is your comfort. His intention is to restore you, rescue you, bless you, deliver you, even after your sin. And there's nothing that can undo his intention. There are no lost causes with God. He's promised to be gracious to you. He's promised to be faithful to you no matter what you ever do. We call that our eternal security. We are secure in the hands of God no matter what we do because we're grass and he's God. There's nothing we can ever do that can change his intention to bless and deliver. That's the third thing Isaiah wants us to understand and answer to the first question, but he's not done yet. One more thing, verse 9. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and in his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arm. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the, nurse, the nursing ewes. Isaiah tells the Israelites, the former inhabitants of Jerusalem, get up on a high mountain and proclaim to the cities of Judah good news. That, that word is interesting, good news, it's basar in Hebrew, it's euangelion in Greek, which we usually translate gospel. That's what he's saying here, get up on a high mountain and proclaim the gospel. What Isaiah is telling us here is that God is willing to restore us. God is interested in restoring us because when he restores us, we get to be his witnesses to a watching world. God restores you, he blesses you, he shows you grace so that you can proclaim his grace to the world. Specifically, verse 10, so that you can proclaim to the Lord that God is your hero. That's the idea of verse 10. It pictures God as a military hero who conquers all of your enemies, who brings you liberation and freedom. So God liberates you so that you can proclaim liberation to the world. Then verse 11, it pictures God as your caring shepherd, a gentle and tender shepherd who watches Over you and protects you, who heals you and cares for you even when you're broken and beaten down. God heals you so that you can proclaim his healing to the world. God's point is at the end of the day, the reason he delivers us is not because of us, it's for him. He gives us grace so that we can glorify him. He gives us grace so that we can proclaim grace to the world. At the end of the day, God's redemption is evangelistic. God is going to heal you. He is going to rescue you. He is going to comfort you because he intends your life to become a witness, a light for him on this earth. So how do you know? That God is willing to rescue and restore you. Even when you have committed serious sin. Even when you have brought incredible destruction into your lives. How do you know that he still wants to deliver you? Because your deliverance is his opportunity for glory. Your deliverance is his opportunity to declare to all of creation that he is glorious in grace. So in answer to the first question when you've blown it, when you have messed up your life in sin, is God willing to step into the mess you've made and bring healing and hope and restoration? Absolutely he is. And he's going to do it in person, not from a distance. And he's going to do it no matter what you've done in your past. And he's going to do it so that you can become his light of revelation, light of glory to the world. Okay, so question number one. Yes, God is willing, but that leads us to question number two. Okay, God is willing to heal me. He is willing to restore me, but is he able to do it? He wants to do it, but can he do it? What if I've sinned really, really badly? I mean, serious sin. I've really messed up my life. Can God heal that, or am I beyond hope? Am I a lost cause? Are there lost causes with our God? Can we fall in sin so far that we go beyond any hope of healing, restoration, redemption? Is that possible, with God, Isaiah answers that question by pointing us to God. He is going to describe God for us. Who is this God we worship? What is he like? That's the point of the next portion of the book of Isaiah. First thing that Isaiah wants us to understand about our God. Who is this God? Verse 12 who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Isaiah is asking a rhetorical question and the answer is obviously no one but God. You see a lot of rhetorical questions here. The answer is no one but God. Isaiah wants us to understand first and foremost about our God that he is immense, That he is huge. Isaiah pictures him like a merchant who is weighing out precious metals on his scale. He has gathered together all of the elements, all of the atoms, all of the molecules that make up creation and he has put them all on his kitchen scale. He's measuring them all. He is designing and arranging them all as he sees fit. We have a God who who holds all the waters in the palm of his hands. He he sees and measures everything. He measures the universe, which is bigger than we can comprehend with the span of his hand. That's literally what it says. Span, that's the distance from your thumb to your little finger. God spans off the entire universe. Isaiah's metaphorical point here is that God is incomprehensibly immense. He is bigger, mightier, grander than all of creation put together. He continues that point in verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. His point is all of the nations are nothing more than than the drop that falls off the back of the bucket when you lift it out of the well. They're nothing more than a, a speck of dust left on a scale. And, and for some of you are, are, are cooks out there, you take your cooking very seriously. Picture it this way. Let's, let's say you're in your kitchen and you take your cooking seriously so you weigh all your ingredients. And you've got your little digital scale there and you, you weigh your flour on your scale. And here's Isaiah's point. You take everything in this world. All of the nations, all their armies, all their power, all their money, all their possessions, all their fame, all their knowledge. You take it all. It doesn't even make up the flower on your scale. You've already emptied the flower. It's the tiny little bit of dust left behind on the kitchen scale of God that doesn't even register. His scale still says 0.000, 000 with all the earth on it. That's how big God is. We count for nothing compared to him. He continues to make that point in the next verse, verse 16. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Lebanon was famous in the ancient world for its massive cedar forest full of countless animals. And Isaiah's point is you take all of that wood and build a huge fire, and you take all of those animals and sacrifice them all on that fire, and that sacrifice is still not worthy of God. God is so great and so valuable that you could sacrifice everything in Lebanon and you wouldn't get close to matching his worth. Same point in verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They're regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. He uses three synonymous words for nothingness or emptiness. There, literally the verse reads, all the nations are as nothing in his presence. They are counted as nothing and nothingness to him. So you take all of this earth, all of the pomp and the circumstance of humanity, you take it all and you hold it up to God. And what have you got? Nothing. (laughs) We are nothing compared to him because he is incomprehensibly immense. He is infinitely greater and grander than all of us put together. That's the first thing Isaiah wants us to understand about our God. He is immense. Second thing, turn back verse 13, who has directed the spirit of the Lord? or as his counselor has informed him, with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding. Isaiah is here talking about the knowledge or understanding of God. And, and this is really significant what he's saying because the people are living in Babylon and in Babylonian religion, their chief God, the creator God was a God named Marduk. And when he went to create the world, that's a pretty big task. So we needed some help so he calls up another god a god they called wisdom another one of the many gods in their pantheon to come assist him in creation and isaiah is saying that's not like our god our god the one true god he didn't need anybody's help in designing the universe he understands all things in perfect detail what isaiah wants us to understand is our god is omniscient Omniscient, he has all knowledge. Omniscience means that God knows and fully understands all things, past, present, and future, both things actual and things possible. In other words, there is absolutely nothing that is hidden from God. Everything he knows, everything he understands, he is omniscient in his understanding. That's the second thing Isaiah wants you to know about your God. Third thing, start in verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. What Isaiah is saying here is your God is incomparable. Your God is incomparable. There's nothing you can compare to him. That's the answer to the rhetorical question. There's nothing that is like him. There's nothing that can represent him. He is incomparable. And so Isaiah moves forward and he he makes a a humorous comparison to idols. Now he's going to do that a bunch. We're going to come back to this. Uh, Isaiah often in the course of writing his book, I think just stopped and laughed at the thought of idolatry. He pictures this guy who goes and, and picks a piece of wood that won't rot and has it turned into an idol. But the idol's not strong enough to stand on its own, so they have to fashion chains to hold it in place. And he says, you're going to worship that compared to the God who created everything? Now, before we laugh at them, we should realize that our idols are just as unreliable. The beauty, wealth, and fame that our world loves that our world worships it's just as impermanent just as fleeting just as unreliable as their little wooden idols our God is incomparable there is nothing in creation you can compare to him what fools we are when we worship the things of this world rather than the God who made this world our God is without peer he is without compare he is without equal Our God is incomparable. That's the third thing Isaiah wants us to understand about our God. Fourth thing he wants us to understand. The God we worship is sovereign. Our God is the transcendent sovereign of heaven and earth. Look with me starting in verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Isaiah begins by saying, your God is sovereign over the earth. He sits enthroned on the horizon. That's what it literally means. God sits enthroned on the horizon. The whole earth is spread out at his feet. We are like grass grasshopper's in his sight. We are nothing. We're insignificant compared to him. And God takes the whole sky and he stretches it over the earth like a thin curtain, like a gossamer curtain. He stretches it over the earth. God is absolutely sovereign over earth. And then Isaiah continues. Verse 23, he it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely have their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. Not only is God sovereign over the earth, he is sovereign over earth's rulers. Every king, every president, every prime minister is under the sovereignty of God. They can do nothing without God's permission. We saw that last week, the king of Assyria, The most powerful man on the planet at that time. God plants a rumor, a fear, an idea in his mind and changes the direction of world history. Leads him away to his own execution. That's what God does to the rulers of the earth. He is absolutely sovereign over them. God is king of all kings and lord of all lords. Finally, third thing. Look with me. Verse 25. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Okay, so God is is sovereign over the earth and he is sovereign over the rulers of earth. And finally, Isaiah says, he concludes, he is sovereign over the entire universe. Now, back in Isaiah's day, this would mean something. Isaiah points us to the sky, to, the, to space, and back in Isaiah's day, it's very dark. You can see lots of stars, but actually these verses should mean a lot more in our day. See, we live in the days of the Hubble Space Telescope. The government built that for, for scientific purposes. They didn't realize that actually the greatest purpose of the Hubble Space Telescope would be worship. Because it reveals to us in unprecedented detail what God meant when he had Isaiah write these verses. Let me share with you some things that we've learned. Okay, the observable universe, that of the universe which we can see with current instrumentation, is approximately 92 billion light years in diameter. Really big. And it is full of something like 10, galaxies, 10 billion galaxies. 10 billion galaxies, such as... The Sombrero Galaxy, aptly named. This is a picture from Hubble. Sombrero Galaxy is composed of hundreds of billions of stars orbiting a supermassive black hole. Uh, looks really big. Actually, it's pretty small compared to this behemoth. This is a pinwheel galaxy composed of a trillion stars. If you do the math, if you multiply that out, a hundred billion galaxies times hundreds of billions of stars each, you end up with our best current guess. There are somewhere around three times 10 to the 23rd stars in the universe. That's 306 billion stars, a three followed by 23 zeros. Now, I can't comprehend that number. That's too big for me to wrap my mind around. So let me illustrate it for you. Let's say you go out in your backyard tonight. And you take with you the most powerful telescope you can find, and you aim that telescope up at the darkest part of the sky, up there to the left, and you zoom in, zoom, 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 until you're looking at a piece of space one-tenth the diameter of the moon, a tiny little window in space, and then you look through your telescope, and what do you see? Well, if you happen to be holding the Hubble Space Telescope, you see this. In the far reaches of the universe, 10,000 galaxies in that tiny little window of space. Not 10,000 stars. You looked at the blackest section of night. You zoomed in until you were looking at a window of space one-tenth the diameter of the moon. And you are looking in the far reaches of the universe at 10,000 galaxies. Do the math and you are looking at 5,000 million million stars through that tiny little window. And Isaiah says God calls all of them by name. Every one of those stars God created... He knows it in perfect detail. He knows every square inch of it. He commands its orbits. He commands its movements. All of them obey his voice. God is sovereign over it all. Isaiah wants us to understand. Our God is the immense, omniscient, incomparable, sovereign Lord of a universe that is too big for us to even grasp. So can your God restore you after you've sinned? Well, if he can fling into existence 300,000, million, million, million stars from nothing, then he can take care of you. He can fix your life. This God can restore you and heal you and bless you and redeem you no matter what you've done. Because he is Lord of heaven and earth, creator of the universe. There are no lost causes with a God like this. There is nothing he cannot do. So is God willing to restore you after you've sinned? Absolutely he is. And is he able to restore you even after you've sinned? Absolutely he is. And that leads Isaiah to his conclusion. Look with me starting in verse 27. Isaiah draws to the conclusion. says in verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes notice of my God? These are the words of the exiles in Babylon. They look at the pain and suffering that their sin has caused, and they lose hope. All they can see is the damage they've done. They can't see past themselves. And so Isaiah encourages them, starting in verse 28. Here's his summary. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God... The Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. What Isaiah is saying is to a God like this, there is no limit to what he can do. He is both willing and able to heal you. Look beyond yourself. Look beyond the pain and suffering in your life. Look to the everlasting creator who has limitless power, who is willing to share that power, that strength with all who will call upon him, all who will wait upon him. Those are code words for faith. Whenever you see that phrase, wait on him in scripture, it's talking about faith. Isaiah wants his audience to trust God, to rely upon God, to call upon God, to look to him to bring healing and restoration and deliverance. If they will turn to God and trust, then he will cause them to rise up like eagles. Those are symbols in in all cultures of freedom and liberation and power and strength. We will have strength and power and freedom in our lives if we will simply look to God in faith. And that leads us to our application. Isaiah is challenging us to believe. He's challenging us to trust God. Now, some of you are saying, Blake, that's the same application as the sermon last week. And to that I say, yes, it is. Because we never outgrow this one. Whole point of the book of Isaiah, over and over again, we need to believe. We need to trust God. All of life boils down to faith. Will we trust God? Will we trust, will we believe when he says that none of us are beyond hope? That none of us are outside of his redemptive reach? Will we believe God when he says that he hears us, that he cares about us, that he wants to comfort us? Will we believe it? Will we believe that God longs to show grace to everyone who will turn to him in faith? Now, for some of you this morning, you need to turn to him in faith for the first time. Maybe you believe that you have sinned so horribly in your life that God could never love you. Or maybe you believe that God's love is possible, but it's something you need to earn. It's something you have to work for. You need to do good works to merit it. What you need to understand this morning is God's love is not something to earn. It's not something to merit. It's something he offers as a free gift to all human beings, even those who've sinned really badly. Even those who've done horrible things, God offers them this morning love. He offers them eternal life, forgiveness, and all they have to do is simply receive it in faith. They simply must believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. Even the really bad sins, Jesus paid the price for all of them, and then he rose from the dead to procure for us eternal life. And all we have to do to receive it is simply believe. Simply turn to God in faith and believe that Jesus died for all your sins and rose from the dead and you will enter into an eternal relationship with God that you can never lose. If there is anything keeping you from believing that truth, please come talk to me or someone else here this morning. There's nothing more important that you will ever think about in the course of your life than the good news of what Jesus did for you. For those of us who have believed that truth... Some of you who are here this morning, you've given in to some pretty serious sin. And as a result, you've experienced some pretty painful consequences. You've brought damage into your life. You've brought pain into the lives of those you love. You are looking around at the mess of life that you have made. And what you need to believe this morning is that God is not just willing, but he is also able to fix what you have done. He is able to heal you. He is able to restore you. He is able to redeem your life. And he wants to do it. He's desperate to do it if you will simply turn to him in faith. If you will simply turn to him in trust, turn away from your sin, turn to God in trust, believe that he can fix what you have broken, and he will do it. You can count on him. He wants to heal you. He wants to restore you. This morning we have the privilege of celebrating communion together. That's our opportunity to celebrate the reality of what Jesus did for us on the cross and in the resurrection. What I would like to do as the men pass the elements of communion, I'd like to ask all of us to go before the Lord privately, silently, And lift this up to God. If you're here this morning and you have committed some sin that just fills you with regret. You feel sorrow. You feel regret. Let me ask you to take this time to go before the Lord and confess your sin to him. And then to praise him that he is a God who comforts and heals no matter what we do. Go before the Lord in confession and faith. And if you're here this morning and you don't have anything in particular to feel regret over, I encourage you to use this time of private reflection for worship. Thank the Lord, praise the Lord that that this God who created an incomprehensibly massive universe who is infinitely bigger than us, who understands all things, who is sovereign Lord, thank him that that kind of God would choose to love you. Let's take this time and go before him in worship as we prepare for communion. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that it is possible for us to be as white as snow. That because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven. We can be redeemed. We can be healed, restored, delivered. Thank you so much, Lord for the gift of your son. We praise him, we thank him for his sacrifice for us. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God of lost causes, that we are never beyond hope of your redemption. Lord, I pray for everyone here. I pray particularly for those who don't know you yet, Lord. Please open their eyes to how great and wonderful and gracious you are. I pray that this morning would be the morning of grace and salvation for them. I pray for all here who do know you, Lord. I, I pray that we would worship you, I pray that we would believe that you are the God that Isaiah reveals, that we would be in awe of you, overwhelmed by how great and immense you are. And I pray, Lord, that when we foolishly give in to sin, I pray that we would be quick to confess and to turn to you in faith. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be hopeful and joyful. And I pray that you would comfort us and heal us and restore us so that we can be a blessing and a witness to the world. Please, Lord, grow us and mature us in our faith so that we can glorify you in this community and around the world. Thank you so much for the gift of your son who makes our redemption possible. In his name we pray, amen.